<laughs> Topics! All right, well, I'm the star, so I get the microphone. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the star, I just let you host. No, no, you're Richard Hammond. Okay, okay. I'm Jeremy Clark. No, no, I'll, I'll, no, I'd rather be James May. I'm Matt LeBlanc, you're Chris Evans. Why do I have to be the <laughs> now? <laughs> you're not allowed to say that. Edited out. We're recording. Yeah. All right. That's recording now. <laughs> Are you sitting quite comfortably? Then I'll begin. Hey, kids, comics. Comic books. An art form early alive. We can rebuild them. We have the technology. With digital downloads and bookstore penetration, which sounds a bit rude, we can make them better than they were before. Better, stronger, faster. Hey kids, comics! And here are your hosts, Andrew and Michael Leyland. Hello, everybody. Hello, everyone. That was a pre-credit bit. Was it? I, 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 I think that's going to be a pre-credit bit. Yeah, okay. I think that was fun. Um, welcome back to Hey Kids Comics. Last week was unusual because you introduced it. I did. And it kind of threw the whole dynamic off. Mm. And the episode never recovered. <laughs> It was a little off step all the way through. Was that was that the, the black sheep episode was, that no yeah. one remembers? <laughs> that was like your Metal Gear Solid episode. Yeah. They're out though, somewhere. <laughs> In the ether. <laughs> Isn't that when they do the polls of top Star Trek episodes? You always know which one's going to come last. And there's always those clickbait things saying, uh, top ten things that stars don't want you to remember and I'm on there. <laughs> That we did two episodes <laughs> devoted to me playing an infuriating computer game. I, know. I put a lot of time and effort into those yeah, shows. They were good shows. I'm not saying they weren't good shows. It's just not memorable ones. No, no. But they are. They're infamous because you keep bringing them I up. I keep bringing them up, yeah, because I remember having to play that game for two solid weeks. Solid. Yay. Yay. See what I did there. Anyway, uh, should we do some emails mm. this week? Because we're, we're back with another special. How many of these things do you have to do before they're not special? I don't know. <laughs> I've been told that I've been special for 20 years. So it's, it's not rubbed off yet. <laughs> I hope you're not rubbing off. <laughs> okay, well, we'll just assume that they're all special. Because when they're all special, nothing's special. That's so what does that make our previous weekly show? If they're not special, does they that make them special? <laughs> they were a lot of things, dude, but they weren't special. <laughs> first email tonight is from Collins that's all it says okay. and it's just subject headed Hulk so that's cool mm. short and to the point right unless his name is Hulk Collins and it's just been split up that would be cool can you imagine being called Hulk Hulk Collins that would be a brilliant name wouldn't it I want to be I'm going to change my name to Hulk Collins I'm going to go on the internet and right. change my name on Facebook or something that'll be totally legal I don't have to pay I don't have to fill in any proper forms it'll just be totally legal and I'll go, I can go a lot, I changed my name. I appreciate you said that just for the one of us to... Uh... <laughs> just for the one of us that will get that joke. <laughs> uh, Collins 
Hello, Collins, says, I haven't listened to your latest episode yet. It depends which latest episode you're referring to, because they're all the special. Hulk one, I'd assume. Okay. Unless that really is his name, and who knows which show he's referring <laughs> it to. It could be any show, couldn't it? But its subject made me wonder, oh yeah, it must be Wilbur Hulk. Hmm. If you've ever done any Hulk episodes before, particularly 70s Hulk smash Hulk, which is my favourite, except for my iPhone. Um, <laughs> oh, I shouldn't have read that, but that's professionalism. Mm. It's just out of the window. Um, we've not, have we? We've we covered Marvel fan phone number eight, which is one of my all-time favourite comics. Yeah, Hulk versus the Blob and Anus. Sorry, Eunus, <laughs> the Untouchable, because you don't want Anus, the Untouchable, <laughs> the Untouchable, <laughs> the Untouchable Anus. Uh, but that's a great comic. We've covered that. Yeah. And but for Hulk, Hulk Grey, Hulk Grey. Yeah, but we've never done any seventies Bronze Age Hulk. No. So we should. Just to introduce you to the wider spectrum of the Hulkiverse. The Hulkiverse. Mm. We did some of the, the Peter David. We did. Yeah. We did a Peter David issue, didn't we? We did the, um, what was his name? Ricky Wilson? Something like that. Jackie Wilson? Jockey Wilson? Sure. Him. His, his mate who was his partner that wasn't Rick Jones in the right, 70s. Okay. He got AIDS, didn't he? He did. Yeah, so, yeah. So we did that one. Mm. We've covered that one at some point. But other than that, no, we've, we're, we're, we're seriously lacking in Hulk coverage. Much like the Hulk in Civil War, that's, that's true. Where apparently he don't wear pants anymore. Because, you know, it's silly that his pants don't rip. Right, okay. So, no, we'll, we'll have to think on that, won't we? Maybe do a Hulk episode. Has he got an anniversary coming up? I, I don't know. Do some Roger Stern Hulk episodes. That would be quite cool. Uh, so, but thank you for emailing in, Collins. I very much appreciate it. I appreciated your brevity. Yeah. I thought that was quite cool. Just emailed in with a question. Mm-hmm. In and out, quick drive by. <laughs> Perfect. I like that. I, I, I like that in an email. The only thing that missed was a plug for his own show. Yeah. I mean, well, I don't know if he has an own show. Let us know if you have your own show. <laughs> Everybody else seems to have their own show. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Our show doesn't feel that special when everyone's got their They're own. all special. I label them as specials. Every one of them. Oh, okay. <laughs> and so does that other podcast. The other podcast. <laughs> And I heard that The Nan have got a podcast as well. <laughs> the Nan's podcast is great. It's, have you heard The Dogs? I've, the Dogs are brilliant. <laughs> the dog, Michael Bailey's show isn't right. a Michael Bailey show until his dogs make an appearance. Right, okay. That's a true story. Right. I swear to God. I feel like I've actually recorded with him when the dogs show up. <laughs> it's brilliant. Fair enough. Our next email is, speaking of Michael Bailey, our next email is from Michael Bailey. Mm. That was a coincidence, it's, wasn't it? It's like we planned it's it. It's like we... Well, yeah, but that would imply that we actually gave some thought to what we were doing. Mm. And that's given us a lot of credit. Yeah. We give some thought to the comics. We don't give any thought to the email section. We just kind of sit down and see how it goes. That's kind we? of the listener's job. Yeah, it is. Yeah, this <laughs> we're, not, we're not writing the emails for them. <laughs> this is the bit of the show where we don't do anything. We just <laughs> let the people... Unless we're Stanley, we're writing our own emails. <laughs> Collins isn't a real person. I've put yeah. that in because in the future I'm just gauging whether there's interest we're, in We're writing sycophantic emails yeah, to, ourselves. to ourselves. Like Stanley used to do. <laughs> Oh, Stan, so much to answer for. Uh, World-ish War Hulk from Michael Bailey, as I said. Hey there, hey kidders, comicers, Leyland. In a weird confluence of events, I am working on a Sunday morning instead of doing actual work, and I am emailing you. It's just like old times. Your recent episodes have been a lot of fun. Hey Kids Comics has become like eating at your favourite yet slightly more expensive restaurant. (laughs) You don't get to go there every week, so when you do get to go, it's special. See? Yeah, that's special. true. 
Not that I pay for this, though. I would if you guys had something like that set up. Because word on the street, down by the docks, this sort of thing vexes you. It doesn't vex us that we don't get paid for doing it. It vexes us that we've never been paid for doing it. That's that's true. You know, I think it would be perfectly acceptable right. if our big comics company actually sent us stuff. Okay. To fully justify what we've done. That Treasury edition of Godzilla... Right. The half year war, half century yeah, war, yeah. whatever it's called. They should send you a copy of that for free. Because we covered it. We covered it and gave it a glowing review. Okay. And th- this implies that anyone in any comic companies listened to our yes. show. Which is not very likely. No. I wouldn't have thought. But anyway, I, I, I think that. I don't think. The only thing with that is once they start sending you stuff, do you have to say nice things about them? Is it like a bribe? That's true. Yeah. Would we have to start doing product placement? Would, would we have to? Would we have to? Mm, start what, a, what a great hot cup of Nescafe coffee! <laughs> Nescafe coffee available at all good bookshops because bookshops are now coffee shops. That's, yeah, well, see, well, they sell coffee in American bookshops. They do. That's, that's a good thing to do. You can buy a coffee, buy a book, sit there and read it all day. Mm-hmm. You still have to go anywhere. You spilled coffee. You bought it. Yeah. Michael continues. Anyway, World War Hulk. I was following Hulk when this came out. I started with the pre-Planet Hulk story by Daniel Way, and for the most part enjoyed Planet Hulk quite a bit. At the time, I felt like it was dragging on a bit, and it should have been called Clocking Time until World War Hulk, but that's snarky and unfair. Pack had a story to tell, and when you read it all together later, it comes off much cleaner than reading it month to month. The build-up to World War Hulk was exciting, and I even got a Peter David story out of it, which is always welcome. World War Hulk itself was... I hate to write this, a bit of a letdown at the time. I realise this is completely unfair because this is one of those stories that really doesn't have an ending, or at least an ending that will be satisfying. The pitch was that the Hulk was back and boy was he pissed off, and some Illuminati ass was going to get kicked and names were going to be taken. I also think there was something about bubblegum in there, but I can't be sure. Thinking back once again, I feel I'm being unfair to a story that was nothing more than it set out to be and had some nice character beats along the way. And it's always good value to see the Hulk and Wando for Superman duke it out. Didn't do enough of that, though, did they? Mm. Actually, I kind of like what Bendis did with the Sentry in the issues of New Avengers that I've read. Considering that the character started out as a publicity stunt pulled by Marvel in the early Quasada years, I'm surprised they ever really liked it. I remember the notice in Wizard that Marvel had quote-unquote found a character Stanley created back in the Silver Age in a draw, and they were bringing him out for the modern age. It was an interesting hook, but rubbed me the wrong way at the time. I ended up enjoying the Paul Jenkins written limited series and specials, but when I saw that Bendis had brought him back, there was a fair amount of eye rolling. I felt like a teenager again. Then I read the New Avengers issues and found that a neurotic take on Superman can be enjoyable, if not a little repetitive. And it was worth it just to have Loeb have the character guest star with Moon Knight in one of his Hulk stories. Sentry and Moon Knight, written by Loeb. World's finest gag. Love it. Anyway, I suppose I have to do some actual work, so I will sign off now. Really looking forward to the Captain America White coverage, as I love that series and want to hear y'all's take on it. Cheers, Mikey Mike B. Well, we hope you didn't uh, hold your breath, and I hope you weren't terribly disappointed by what we said. I liked it, you didn't think much of it, did you? I enjoyed it. Yeah, that's just the bottom line, I suppose, isn't it? Uh, Speaking of World War Hulk, we go back to Iron Man and Extremis, which doesn't link to Captain America White in any way. No. So, James Hunt has emailed in. Time to go extremis. Hello, Leyland. I'm currently sat at a pool in Portugal in 28 degrees Celsius, although by the time you read this, I'll probably be back on the heat of jolly old England. I've been listening to your Iron Man Extremis episode and thought I'd share my experience with it. I liked Addy Granoff as a cover artist for a while and saw the collective hardcover on offering WH Smith a few years ago. Being a huge fan of the Matt Fraction run on Iron Man, I thought that reading the origin of Extremis would be worth the punt. Oh dear. 
As you say, the idea of Extremis isn't bad, but the story it debuts in is not the best, and it's not helped by Granov's art, which is just not suited to storytelling. That said, the concept of Extremis is very good, with Fraction and Loraka using it very well. I remember an issue that Stark's limo is blown up, and he uses the armour within him to protect himself from the blast body part by body part, with Salvador Loraka's art being more dynamic than Granov's. I'm still a fan of Granov's covers, but would really think twice before buying anything in which he's doing the interiors. In addition, earlier this year I sold a lot of my Marvel trades as I'd been using Marvel Unlimited for a few years now and thought I'd get some cash for some books before I moved house. I made around £500 selling my trades, but one of the 40-odd lots didn't sell. Turns out you can't sell Extremis even for two quid. Just reading Planet Hulk and World War Hulk on Marvel Unlimited in preparation for your World War Hulk coverage. This is from the time I started reading comics on a regular basis and never pulled the trigger on it due to cost, but thanks to the app I can read as much as I want. Back to the sun. James Hunt in Hedden, brought to you by Marvel Unlimited and appearing on no podcasts that I currently know of. <laughs> so what was that I was saying about product placement? <laughs> if only we got paid by iPad <laughs> and by Portugal. Mm. That would be nice, that, wouldn't it? it would. Portugal paid for an all-expenses-paid trip and iPad gave us what, some free iPads. the country of Portugal? Yeah. What, the, the taxpayers are yeah. paying for a holiday? Trip? Yeah. <laughs> I think that's perfectly fair. Where, where, where are our Portuguese taxes going oh, over some two British books to come on holiday here? There'd be a revolt, wouldn't there? there? Might be, yeah. <laughs> our next email is from the lovely Luke Giaconetti, who's just on views from the long box from Michael Bailey, talking about Heroes Reborn Iron Man. You ever read any of that? I've you ever read any Heroes Reborn? I, I read the miniseries. The one afterwards, Heroes Return. The Return, yeah, yeah I read that. Okay. Leyland Smash, World War Hulk, Gamma Andy and Michael Fixit. That's well, a bit of an well, unfortunate well, name, really. What? Michael Fixit. Oh! It was, it was the 70s, can we, can we I, let it go, I, please? I, I, don't think, I don't think Luke will be aware of the whole Jimmy Savile thing. I know. So I, I think you got away with it. <laughs> well, 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 what better way to follow up Extremist than with World War Hulk? Now then, now then! <laughs> it's exactly what I thought. <laughs> It's made him choke. You want to talk about a story which had iron fans up in arms? World War Hulk was it. The story exists first and foremost to punish Iron Man and the other members of the Illuminati for what the Marvel Brain Trust had done to them during Civil War, which is to say make them unrecognisable and bizarrely out of character. Writers like Mark Miller, Brian Michael Bendis and especially Dan Slott used Iron Man and his allies as cardboard cutout stand-ins for the W. Bush administration and hence they were warmongers, bores, buffoons, fools, liars and ultimately villains because that was and remains the leftist lockstep narrative. So having Hulk come back and smash them for five issues served its purpose by telling the readers oh yeah the bad guys won civil war but don't worry Hulk is going to give them their comeuppance the discussions about the jobbing of Iron Man in this story and oh boy is he jobbed out started with the first preview pages and continued on through the end popular game on the Iron Man message board at comicboards.com during this time of which I was an active member was concocting a way for Iron Man to easily defeat the Hulk using technology already established in the title my favourite involved Tony using anti-grabs to simply lift the Hulk 10 feet off the ground where his strength is negated as he has no mass to push against but no marching orders said Iron Man is a bad guy so by definition he has to act like a stooge hence barrage of missiles in Central Park satellite death rays and potentially dropping Manhattan into the negative zone at least in his own book, the point of the Hulk Buster armour, injecting Hulk with nanomachines which would turn him back to Banner, is a plan that makes some sort of sense. 
Never mind that the reason why the black bolt happens off-panel is if it were playing fur, Bolt could simply shout, Hey! and flay the flesh off the Hulk's bones, and then grind said bones to a fine powder. But again, Hulk is here to punish those awful mean right-wing bad guys. Combined with Black Bolt playing the role of Martian Manhunter in this story, look how powerful new bad guy is. He easily defeated John, who's a stronger Superman. Taking on its own merits, the story's okay, but unfortunately for me as an Iron fan, I cannot divorce the inane and backwards real-world origins from the four-colour storyline. That's a personal problem for me, but I enjoyed your coverage and listening to you guys discuss it, so ultimately that's what's important. The rantings of an obsessed Iron fan notwithstanding, hearing you guys talk about this series and get into the subtleties which Pat layers into the story was very enjoyable. Much more enjoyable for me than actually reading it. So keep up the good work. You made me thoroughly enjoy an episode about a series I wouldn't buy with your money. Sincerely, with all props, Luke. Well, that's certainly a valid viewpoint. Hmm? I quite like that. Because we're reading it many, many years after the fact. Yes. So the whole political ramifications or inspirations, I suppose, is a better word, isn't it? Hmm. For the story, were just completely lost on us because we didn't pay any attention to them. No, they weren't lost on me. Well, they don't. Not on me, no, they probably were on you. <laughs> yeah, 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 totally, because I think our politicians are wankers. Yeah, but it's one of those... Right, well, left, don't care, yeah, yeah, yeah. they're all wankers. Uh, it's, it's one of those things where you kind of do have to divorce it after the fact, because it's not like... You, you, so you read that story and it's about George Bush administration, mm. but that's two presidents ago. Yeah. So you kind of have to divorce it at a certain point. So that's so I was basically just looking at it is does it work as an entertaining Incredible Hulk story? And I think it did. Yeah. I think Luke's got some incredibly valid points there about there are any numbers of where Iron Man could take down the Hulk. Yes. Because certainly they're in the same weight class, aren't they? But Iron Man has his old gadgetry stuff mm. as well as the pure strength of the armour. Whereas yeah. Thor versus the Hulk is just a knockdown, drag out fight, isn't it? Yes. Even with Mjolnir. So that's that's certainly a valid point, and I didn't even consider that because I was just wrapped up in the fact that Hulk's punching things. Yeah, and it just felt like such a long time since I'd seen Hulk punching things. Instead of going, ooh, remember the last time I punched things? Yeah, and died. And it just it felt like I mean, some of it's Peter David's fault. He took it away from that, and I suppose he had to. Yeah, because it was getting a bit repetitive. But then it felt like everybody who followed Peter David. We're doing, we're doing a psychological drama, yeah. And sometimes all I want from my Hulk story is him punching stuff, yeah. Which is why I think Planet Hulk and World War Hulk worked for me because you know it was a great Hulk punches the crap out of people story. At the end of the day, you want to read a comic and not the Odyssey, yeah. Or at the end of the day, I want to read a comic and not a political commentary. Now I accept that pretty much everything has an agenda if you look deeply enough into it, yeah. And everything is political if you want to look at it that way. You know, Superman's pledge of non-interference is itself a political act. Yeah. And Captain America is a political figure just by what he was. Mm. But you can you can take that out of it if you just want to enjoy the story. Yeah. And I, I, I don't really care what people's political views are as, as long as they're not in a punish, permission, position to act upon them. <laughs> if their viewpoints are particularly abhorrent. Because everyone's just pissing in the wind, basically. <laughs> anyway, so that was good. I did, I did look at World War Hulk in a different light after that email. So, uh, shall we move on to actually talking about this month's... I'm saying month? Yeah. Is it, are we doing this monthly now? Is that what we're doing? I, I don't know. I don't know anymore. They get released when they get released now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> when I finished them and tidied them up a bit and beta listened to them and made sure there's no mistakes in them, I'll release them. 
Mm. I know I'm going to try and keep to a Thursday. Right. Because okay. I figure that's how we're day now. Yeah, yeah. But, you know. The Hey Kids Day. The Hey Kids Day. The Day of Hey Kids. Yeah, well, um, Chris Warden said you've conditioned your listeners <laughs> to expect an episode on Thursday. So I think I released the Christmas one on a Monday. And right. I feel that confused him. <laughs> so he was like, no, 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 Thursday would be good. Because so, that's, that's what it's a Thursday that we released that. Yeah. So, all right, Chris, just for you, we will stick to Thursdays wherever possible. I think the Christmas one kind of had to be released a bit early because then it would have missed Christmas. Yeah. But, you know, that's what we'll do. Anyway, um, uh, Bronze Age team ups after this commercial break. As superhero movies are becoming mainstream entertainment at theaters around the world, comic fans also have plenty of heroic action on the small screen to keep them sated while waiting for the next blockbuster. We are in a golden age of superhero television shows, with plenty of offerings from both the Marvel and DC universes, and the trend shows no sign of slowing down. To chronicle these recent shows and even examine some of the classics, we are proud to present Weekly Heroics, a two true freaks guide to heroes on TV. In every podcast, we'll be doing recaps of individual episodes of one Marvel show and one DC show until we catch up to them or some supervillains shut us all down. My name is Scott McGregor, and I'm the fastest podcaster alive. That's what she said. And I'm Chris Tyler, one of your agents of cool. To bring you this podcast, we each have to become someone else. We each have to become something else. fantastic cast shameless plug we've gotten into covering Marvel 2 in 1 one of the four main Bronze Age team up books I remember reading as a kid Marvel 2 in 1 is an immensely fun book that re-engaged my interest in those old team up titles for obvious reasons we won't be looking at Marvel 2 in 1 but I thought it may be interesting for Michael and I to look at the other team up comics largely because my memory is of them in quintessential Bronze Age books For people not familiar with the term, the Bronze Age of comics follows the Golden and Silver Age and is generally considered to be comics published from the early 1970s to the mid-1980s. There are four books that I think of when discussing Bronze Age team-up titles, two from Marvel and two from DC. The DC books were The Brave and the Bold and DC Comics Presents, and the Marvel books were Marvel 2-in-1 and Marvel Team-Up. Interestingly, none of these titles, despite the popularity at the time, lasted outside of that era of comics. All normally had one main star and one guest star. Spider-Man led Marvel team-up, The Thing headlined two-in-one, and Batman and Superman top-lined DC Comics Presents and The Brave and the Bold, respectively. The Brave and the Bold is the odd one out in that it started in 1955, and as we'll discuss later, wasn't a Batman team-up title at all in the beginning, only becoming the de facto headline with issue 67, cover dated September 1966, coincidentally just after he became a TV star. Batman became the co-lead of the book in every issue from that point, with the exception of but a handful. The team-up books of the era were always solid purchases. Never in the top tier, they were always comics I would buy when there was nothing else I was interested in, but invariably they were always good value, and at the very least, good entertainment. There's no denying that these comics were, for the most part, odd ducks. Commercial appeal overshadowed character fidelity for the most part, as characters like Superman and Spider-Man were shoehorned into adventures they didn't really need to have. Superman can pretty much handle most problems on his own, so the story logic and having him team up every month with a different DC hero was sometimes torturous. Likewise, Marvel team-up often wound itself up in knots, trying to explain how the non-team player that was Spider-Man would find himself in situations whereby joining forces with another hero was a viable option. Strangely, Batman and The Thing didn't really have this problem, as Batman was generally more affable in those days, and The Thing was a friendly guy overall. 
As such, the best issues of DC Comics Presents, the first boot we're going to cover tonight, were issues with an unusual team-up or a different kind of adventure. Some of my favourites were the offbeat ones, issues where Superman teamed up with characters like Robin, Swamp Thing, The Joker, or even Clark Kent. The four issues by Jim Starlin that ran through editions 26 through 29, a long-time favourite, and many thanks to Bob Fisher who gave me a copy of issue 26. Anytime Superman fought Shazam, sorry, Captain Marvel, was also a wonder to behold with the Big Red Cheese and the Man of Tomorrow clashing in issues 33, 34 and 49. DC Comics Presents also produced four annuals, none of which are less than great and all of which are worth your time tracking down if you've never read them. The team-up title's greatest strength, though, was also its greatest weakness. You never quite knew what you were going to get. They rarely had consistent creative teams or continuing subplots, so there was no reason to follow the comics from month to month. This added to the appeal, though, as for every run-of-the-mill entry you would find a gem, such as this, my all-time favourite issue of DC Comics Presents. Issue 61, cover dated September 1983. This is smack dab in the middle of my personal golden age of comics. The cover is by George Perez. From the world that's coming to the world of today, the killer called Murder Mech runs the cover copy, as Superman teams up with Omac to run at a figure dominating the central image. It's typically Perez in that it's incredibly detailed with rubble and background figures. It's also typically Perez in that it's gorgeous. What do you think of that cover? It's really good. It's, yeah. It fits into that... What were we covering a while ago? Oh, it was Dark Empire, wasn't it? Mm. Where you said it was three. Yeah, yeah. It was split into three, which that is. Murder Mech right down the middle. Superman's on the left. Omax on the right, running towards us, about to punch him. And I love that he's called Murder Mech. Yeah. The robot. It's almost as subtle as the Terminator. <laughs> almost. Mm. And that's possibly not the only Terminator reference we're mm. going to make today. I don't know why. <laughs> I don't know why that film just came into my head, but, you know. The Once and Future War was written by Len Wein with art by George Perez and Pablo Marcos. The day after the day after a thousand tomorrows. The place, an unlawful laboratory hidden deep beneath the surface of the world that's coming. The players, a cold-blooded cadre of criminal intercorp scientists and the dedicated arch-enemy, the one-man army corps, codenamed OMAC. After Omak smashes the Intercorp goons, he spots a pre-programmed assassin being sent back in time to kill Norman Blank, Omak's real identity's father. As the murderous assassin named Murder Mech vanishes into the time stream, Omak leaps in after him, which causes him to lose contact with Brother Eye, the orbiting satellite that monitors and protects Omak. The time. Today. Well, 1983. Murder Mech lands in the middle of a liquor store holdup and takes the Huds to be his posse. Superman shows up and Murder Mech kicks him around town. Superman zooms back to the scene and instead attacks Omak, who has just arrived. After the misunderstanding part of the fight is over, Omak explains what's going on, but Superman doesn't need telling the dangers to the time stream if Murder Mech kills Buddy Blank's father. Murder Mech, meanwhile, is using his futuristic bioscan technology to locate Norman Blank, which he does at Metro Central Station in rush hour. 
murder mech attacks who he presumes to be Norman, but Superman saves him and they get into it. Omak takes on the goons, now outfitted futuristic war buggies. Omak triumphs quite easily, and Superman, despite having a hard time of it, ultimately emerges triumphant to the roar of the crowd. Omak and Superman finally get a moment to talk, and they both realise they were protecting the wrong man. Omak has no answers, as Brother Eye has fixed the time circuits and located him, pulling him back to the world of tomorrow. Behind Superman, a lowly janitor goes about his business. A janitor named Norman Blank. Wow, did you see that twist coming? I, I didn't. No. Did you not? No. Okay. Oh, you're being facetious. No, I actually didn't. No, no it's a good ending, actually. Mm. I thought it was quite a clever ending. Um, I don't know when Perez fitted this into his busy schedule, but um, it coincided with a month, because this is how much research I did. Right. Coincided in a month when the new, there's no issue of the new Teen Titans released okay. in this particular calendar month. And the next two issues of the Teen Titans to come out, 35 and 36, featured filling art by Keith Pollard. Right. Now, Perez's schedule and devotion to the Titans may be why we only got one issue of DC Comics Presents by Perez, which is a shame, because he draws a really good Superman, mm. doesn't he? I think he draws a fantastic... But he draws a great Omac. Yeah. And he draws a great Brother Eye. And he draws great Rubble. And he just draws great everything. <laughs> so that's probably going to be a repetitive refrain Yeah. as we go through the episode. I mean, all this is mind reading on my part. You know, he could have drawn this months before it was published. Mm. I just thought it was coincidental that it came out in a month where there was no Titans, and then he had two issues off the Titans. Yeah. And I wonder if he slid that into the schedule at roughly the same time. Bro, I, I love how really Ponzi the, uh, the opening narration is. But Why? It's, it's so cool, Ponzi. Yeah. It's like, the time, the day after, the day after tomorrow. Like, just say the future. But it sounds cool. Yeah, well, it's Len Wein. Len Wein was always good at overblown narration. Mm. I think he was kind of like the Earth of Roy Thomas's throne, but Wayne didn't feel the need to have all the characters speak all of the time. Although there is a lot of, of wordage yeah. in this issue, which I didn't think was a bad thing. Is it not a little bit of the whole... I don't know, the kind of Douglas Adamsy approach to it as well. <laughs> a little bit, yeah. The day after, it's kind of like... The make, day after the day after sound, a thousand yeah, tomorrow. making it sound a bit more exaggerated just yeah. to... Deep beneath the surface of the world that's coming. I love it. Mm. I love that. That's why I read it. It's overblown. Yeah. But it's fun. I should score it with the Terminator. <laughs> Again! Oh, what? Yeah. Yes, it's really weird. Um, love the splash page, love the little circles with the heroes in. Plus all that glorious Perez rubble. Yeah. And the, just the, the sheer detail in the back. This deserves a Treasury Edition reprint. I don't know if this got reprinted, <laughs> to be honest with you. Um, did you think it was explained how Omak knew what Murder Mech's mission was? Did no one explain it to him? There's a passing reference to him hearing whispers of Murder Mech's plan. Mm. The whispered rumours I overheard are true when they activate the time transmitter. So, yeah, that's how he knows. It kind of implies that Intercorp has a massive leak in its security, though. That's Unless, true. as with all rebellions, they've got spies. Mm. So that's, you know... It wasn't a deal-breaker or anything. I thought, you know, it was just a bit, oh, it was convenient. Yeah. But it, there's a lot of plot here. There's a lot of story to get through in, in 20-odd pages. So. Uh, Pablo Marcus is an Inca I don't recall working with Perez before. And Perez has got a really, really fine line. Certain Incas really overpower it. Vinica <laughs> letter. <laughs> but, thankfully, that's not the case here. Well, there are some towns where it is definitely Perez, and oh, some yeah. towns where it's not as Perez-y. Well, the detail on page four 
like the shot of the cityscape and then the cops around that liquor store panel yeah is absolutely gorgeous all the police and all the cars surrounding and every building and every window and every light on that street is drawn to perfection yeah and that's how, and then the inside of the liquor store and they're doing that thing where they're crouching on the panel border Mm. I, you, I always quite. I always find that quite fun. But there was just a few panels or so where it wasn't quite Pereza. So considering it was two years before Crisis, yeah. it either wasn't there yet or it was just the Inca. I think it was on Fantastic Four and then Justice League and Teen Titans where he became George Perez. Yeah. But yeah, Pablo Marcus's inks, that I think it's still very definitely Perez, but you're right, there's a little bit of... It's not the Perez of Crisis on Infinite Earths. And mm. I think you're right. I think that's down to the inking. But that's not a diss on the inking. No. I just think that means that the inking on Crisis is better. Yeah. It complements the pencils Yeah, it complements. Exactly right. Yeah, not better. It complements the pencils more. Thank you. Whereas this, there's nothing wrong with it. Yeah. It's perfectly brilliant in its own way. And it does exactly what it's supposed to do. Uh, but it just that just carries on all the way through. The gorgeous sort of Superman at the top of page six as if he's flying through a fisheye lens is that what that would be yeah that is absolutely brilliant superman being blasted backwards by murder man the cape going over his face that was it that was that was really really good this may be the best looking comic we've looked at in a long time Mm. you know what i think i don't know Granted, in the long time for us is not a long time for lovely that's, listeners. That's true. We've only in recent vintage we've only looked at what Dark Empire and so Kryptonite. When we say this is the best looking comic we've done in a while, what you mean is this is the only comic we've done in a while. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's, that's exactly what I mean. Uh, it's the only only. Comic. It's the best looking of today's comics. It's the best looking <laughs> comic that we've looked at. Oh, I don't know if I agree about that. I think the autobiography of Bruce Wayne that's pretty damn good. You think? Yeah, yeah, and, and Kerry Gamble drew the team up issue. We can't be dissing on Kerry Gamble. I'm just not having none of that. Uh, page five, Robot Cop. Right. This predates Robot Cop. Okay. So that's pretty cool as well. And Superman rising from the rubble. And it's all black and blue. Yeah. So the S is standing out like it's silver, like on the cover of that reprint. We've got Neil Gaiman stuff. That's really cool. That's that's just gorgeous, and his face that, at the bottom of page. That eight. is a red eyes moment. Yeah, only was. without the red eyes yeah. because they didn't do that back then. Superman does attack Omak without any provocation. Yeah, it's a Marvel team up issue, this, isn't it? it? It was. He does say later on. Yes. He, he I mean, he doesn't know he's got anything to do with Murder Mac. And I really wouldn't care, but Superman tries to reason with Murder Mac before the punching starts. Yeah. That's why it stuck out a bit. Why does he not afford Omak the same courtesy? In fact, it's Omak who has to point out, you started this fight, not me. Mm. So you're kind of like, all right, Superman's a bit of a hothead in this story. Yeah. Which is, you know, it's a very Marvel thing. And it puts lie to the idea DC only has started adopting Marvel approaches after Crisis on Infinite Earth. But Len Wein at this point had written an awful lot for Marvel. Mm. So I think some of that is, is coming in. But the overall plot is... Vaguely familiar. It is. So, uh, the robots win. Yeah. And so, they send back Murder Mech Yeah. To kill the creator of Omak before Omak can be created. Well, it's Omak himself. So, they're o- sending yeah. Omak, they're sending Murder Mech back in time to kill Omak's dad. Yeah. Before Omak is born yeah. as Buddy Blank. So then, Omak goes so back in time. Kind of like a retroactive abortion. <laughs> 
Do you see what's great about this? In most paranoid delusions, there has to be some element of, of reality. But this, this is just brilliant. There's no way we can prove that he's wrong. I think I messed up the quote at the end there. Mm. <laughs> but yeah, it, it's very similar to, to, the, uh, to, the Terminator. to the Terminator. And by similar, you mean exactly the same. Well, you can't say it's ripping that film off, though. This predates the Terminator. Hmm. This came out before the Terminator did. And even the episode of The Outer Limits, Soldier, which yeah. Carl and Ellison ended up getting the credit on the Terminator because, that doesn't have the, the story element of going back in time to kill your target's parents, if memory serves. I've not seen Soldier in, God, 30 years. Right. But I don't remember that being a part of the plot. Hmm. So They all lended to each other. Yeah. If I was Len Wein, I'd have gone to Alan Ellison and said, hey, wait a minute, <laughs> I want some of that money, or credit, or whatever. Yeah. Because, I mean, you don't know James Cameron didn't read this, mm. but we don't know that he did read it as well, so, yeah. you know, it's, it's just, it's very, 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 very close to the plot of The Terminator. Yeah, yeah. To the point it's where it's too close for it to be a coincidence. I I don't think a court of law could look at this and look at the Terminator and go, well. But then you have to prove that Cameron ripped them off. That's the difficulty. Yeah. Cameron could turn around and say, I never read comics, mm. which I don't think is true because he was going to do Spider Man at some point. Yeah. And the Terminator is a comic book movie, isn't it? But anyway, you know, I'm not saying James Cameron ripped off this issue of DC Comics Presents. Just not mainly. reeling it out. Yeah, I'm just not reeling it out. But also the lawyers at Demands Co. Demands Co. won't <laughs> let us say that. So we're not saying that. Let's just be absolutely clear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We are not saying that the Terminator ripped off this comic. In any way. At all. That's not what we're saying. Just it might have done. Allegedly. Yeah. Allegedly. Thank you, Paul Merton. Um, no Clark Kent in this issue. No. None at all, which shows that stories of this vintage could go completely without having Clark Kent and it'd be a good story. At this point, I'll be honest with you, when a Spider-Man story didn't have a Peter Parker angle, I didn't consider it a good Spider-Man story. Mm. But this, you don't miss Clark, you don't miss the Daily Planet, it's just because it's such a fast-moving, excellent issue in many ways. Well, is it not because it's, it's not Superman? It's not a Superman title? So um, you don't need to have that. Well, it is a Superman title, but yeah, they don't have to... You don't to need to ground it in character when no, it's just a, a, you can a, just a fight them up comic. Yeah, you can have a really plot-heavy fight and just get on with the story. Because this isn't about Superman. Superman's in this story, but it's about Omak. Yeah. Which is one of the things that they did a lot in the team-up books. It wouldn't be about the star of the book. He's just our way of seeing someone else's yeah. story. So, because they've got other books. Yeah. Ormac didn't have another title at this point, did he? So this is probably the only place Ormac was... You could see Ormac. Mm. So you could do a decent Ormac story, but Superman's in Superman, and he's in Action Comics, and he's in Justice League, so there's any other number of places to do a, a Superman story. Um, I actually... I thought this was a really, really good issue. I felt really held up, despite its similarities to a certain science fiction motion picture from 1984. <laughs> But I'm not saying that it was it was ripped off no, in any way. Not at all. That's not what I'm saying. Um, still, you know, this is a worthy addition to anybody's collection because it's just a brilliant comic. And I, I don't know if this ever got reprinted anywhere. I think it should have done because mm. it's absolutely fantastic. They've done those George Perez volumes, haven't they? Yeah. Maybe it got reprinted in one of them. 
What did you think of that? I quite enjoyed it. It's good. Even though uh, I've, I've never been that big of a fan of OMAC. Do you not like the Kirby OMAC? I've never read the Kirby OMAC, but honestly... It's I know, I know. Oh, I might do it. But honestly, I feel like he, he, he looks a bit stupid. Oh, yeah, well... With his mohawk and his side And burns. Jack Kirby's fourth world characters don't. No, they look great. Oh, okay. The four four characters, even the Black Racer, which is a black guy in skis, looks cool. Which is just a rip-off of the Silver Surfer. Yeah, but he's on skis, not a surfboard. Oh, that's completely different. It's as different as that comic is (laughs) from the Terminator. Now, I'm not saying Jack Kirby read the Silver (laughs) Surfer. But the difference there is Jack Kirby's ripping off himself, isn't he? So that's that's perfectly okay. I I have a soft spot for OMAC. Right. With the caveat that it is... Crazy. Mm. It really is. I mean, the opening panel of issue one is this woman with her own head between her legs. Oh, because the, the toys you put yeah, together. Yeah, yeah, yeah the yeah, dolls yeah. that you put together. And there's, there's always, as with all Kirby, there's so many brilliant ideas in it. Yeah. But he really did need a script to, mm. to help him pull those ideas together. But it, it's there's some wonderful concepts in it. And right. I like the art in OMAC. Yeah. Because it is just around his fourth world stage where he's doing some of his best stuff. So it's, it's before he, you know. It did tail off a bit, let's be honest. Oh, yeah. But I, I, I think you'd, you'd probably enjoy OMAC from a this-is-really-wacky standpoint. Mm. Well, the, the Jimmy Olsen fourth world. Yeah. They're like Jimmy Olsen issues, so you don't care, but they're, they're out there. Mm. So. They're completely... So I know OMAC's the same. Yeah. I, I think you'd probably get a kick out of OMAC, to be honest with you. Um, the only interesting advert in this comic is one for Atari. Okay, and it's uh, and, uh, and it's tied in with a Superman three sweepstake. Right, so we can't even do adverts. This particular one, DC Comics presents debuted in April 1978, just in time to capitalise on the release of Superman the movie, and came to an end 97 issues later in June of 1986. I always thought it was a pity that the comic never received a proper send off like all the other Bronze Age team up titles did, and why DC couldn't have double shipped a few issues towards the end to give it a 100th anniversary issue is a mystery. DC Comics presents just seemed to end rather than going out with a bang. Marvel Team-Up followed the DC Comics Presents template almost to the letter. Every month, a hero that doesn't need to team up with anyone, in this case Spider-Man, would participate in an offbeat adventure that may or may not really suit them. To be fair, it's easier to shoehorn Superman into team-ups, because at least Superman is somewhat gregarious. Spider-Man is a sarcastic loner who doesn't really get on with anybody else in the superhero set, at least when this title was on the stands. Marvel Team-Up ran an impressive 150 issues from December 1972 to November 1984, again making it an almost textbook Bronze Age book. Unlike DC Comics Presents, Marvel Team-Up did have a few periods where it had a regular creative team, and it's probably no surprise that these issues tended to be some of the best. Writers Bill Mantlo, Len Wein, Jerry Conway, and artists Al Buscema and Jim Mooney contributed a lot, and Chris Claremont and John Byrne had a successful run with some of the notable issues being Spider-Man meeting Red Sonja, Power Man, and Captain Britain. Claremont also teamed up with Frank Miller for issue 100, another underrated gem that also featured a Byrne-Austin backup. More offbeat team-ups included Spider-Man meeting the cast of Saturday Night Live in issue 74 and Doctor Doom in issue 43. The Human Torch headlined the book a few times in the early years and the Hulk took over for a couple of issues here and there, but primarily this was a third Spider-Man title, even if it was only rarely acknowledged in the main Spider-Man comics. Team-Up was a fun book, but that none of these 150 issues had any kind of impact on Spider-Man's life tells you all you need to know. Although it's hard to dislike a comic that has Aunt May fight Galactus. 
My favourite run was J.M. DiMatteis and Kerry Gamble's tenure, which ran roughly from issues 119 to 131. She did fight Galactus. It was a Christmas issue. Was it? Yeah, she got powers from Twinkies and fought Galactus. We, twink- we've covered it. Tw- she got powers from Twinkies? Yeah, we've covered that issue. We did it and uh, a Christmas, because it's a Christmas issue. Have we? Yeah, The Watcher. The Watcher shows up. I'm sure I would have remembered. Uh, it's, 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 it's very good. It's a great issue. <laughs> what does she call it? She calls herself something really funny and I cannot for the life of her remember what it is now. The Grey Lady or something like that. Anyway, she's a Herald of Galactus. No, that's what it is, yeah. Right. She becomes a Herald of Galactus. Okay. It's a great, great issue. From Twinkies. Yeah. <laughs> Twinkies are involved. <laughs> Maybe it's not from Twinkies. I can't a radioactive Twinkie. Yeah, but we, we have covered that, that issue. We right. did it as a Christmas episode. Okay. okay. A long time ago, but, but we did do it. DiMatteis took a different approach, choosing to focus more on the people Spider-Man met than Spidey himself. A further tactic as Spidey had two other books. The issues featuring the Gargoyle and Dominic Fortune are particularly noteworthy, but for this show I elected to pick one of DiMatteis' comedy issues. Marvel Team-Up issue 131, cover dated July 1983, has a cover by Paul Smith. Spider-Man and Frogman's heads adorn a wall as the White Rabbit stands between. The White Rabbit, as you would expect, adorned in clothes that make her look like she stepped off the pages of Alice in Wonderland. The UPC box is replaced by a WARNING! WARNING! This book is not for the overly serious. The Best Things in Life are Free, But Everything Else Costs Money, was written and drawn by DiMatteis and Gamel with inks by Mike Esposito. Uh, what do you think of the cover? It's not really a lot to it, is it? There's not, but it's funny. It is, it is funny. Enter White Rabbit. The, the names they have above the, the heads. Spidericus Idioticus and Frogicus Megafulicus. Yes. I'm pretty sure... Those aren't their actual Latin names. I'm pretty sure that's not their actual Latin names, <laughs> but I'm also pretty sure that that's a homage to Roadrunner cartoons. Right, okay. Where the Roadrunner would freeze and it would have his name underneath Runicus Fasticus. Yeah. Or stuff like that. And then Wiley Coyote, about to dieicus in humorous fasciconus. Right, okay. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's what they said. Right, okay. I didn't just make them up. I'm, I'm sure. <laughs> Are you, are you really? Are you really sure? I didn't I, I'm, I'm, I'm having some doubts, but I'll, I'll, I'll take your word for it. I don't make anything up. Okay. Everything I say is true. Right. As your father, you know that to be true. Of course. Except the things I said that are lie. Yeah. Ever so slightly insane, but incredibly hot evildoer, the White Rabbit. What is it about insane women? <laughs> it makes them hotter. Until they start cutting up your clothes and... And putting your pet rabbit in the bottom. Yeah, that's just not good, is it? <laughs> the White Rabbit has been knocking over fast food joints. This time, however, she reckoned without Eugene Petio, the Frogman. Well, not so much reckoned without as never gave him a thought. Still, Eugene's inept ways managed to prevent her robbery, and Spider-Man, passing by at just the right moment, prevents Eugene from being a red splat on the pavement. So, that's something, right? Spider-Man tries to put Eugene straight about the superhero biz, but Eugene is desperate to redeem the reputation of his father, the Leapfrog, whose equipment he has purloined. Eugene's dad is a former criminal and daredevil bad guy, and the lack of money is getting him down. It seems like Mr. Padillo is headed back to a life of crime. Elsewhere, Peter Parker is told by his friend Roger Hotchberg that Roger's mum needs an operation real soon, an operation he has no money to pay for. Peter vows to help and hits upon the idea of catching the white rabbit for the reward money. The Petillos also hit the same idea, although Mr. Petillo decides working for her is the better option and goes back down the rabbit hole of crime. 
Spider-Man and Frogman both spot the White Rabbit's van as she prepares her next caper, but in the ensuing fight she gets away, coincidentally landing in the same hospital room of Roger's mum. Roger hits her over the head with the vase. Spider-Man arrives telling Roger that he just earned a nice big fat reward for the capture of the White Rabbit. The police arrive and state that Roger will have to share it with Mr. Patio, who was in fact undercover, so the police could bring the White Rabbit in. The end. <laughs> That's what this was, wasn't it? Yeah. That's all, folks. Fun, though. It was. It was, it was, it was a great issue. Uh, the White Rabbit, Harley Quinn before Harley Quinn. Yeah. Didn't you? Mm. And again, Kerry Gamble has her standing on the page borders. So why did John Byrne get told, don't do that, we don't like it, when all these other artists were doing it? Granted, the Perez thing was a DC book, yeah. so you know maybe that's why he got away with it. Um, there's also a couple of elements of kick-ass to Eugene. Not the self-made think? hero. Yeah. yeah, without, you know, Mark Miller's propensity for nastiness, Yeah, Eugene's a nice kid. I mean, Thingyo is in Kick-Ass, I suppose. What's his mm. name? Dave Litnicki or whatever? No, I don't Lewinsky, Louis, Monica, whatever his name was. <laughs> whatever, I don't remember his name. Dave something, something, something ski. You mean his name's not really Kick? No, his name is not <laughs> Kick-Ass. I mean, I suppose he could get it trained legally by just changing <laughs> it on the internet, couldn't he? <laughs> Again. <laughs> well, what I like about Frogman's first appearance where he knocks the guy over in the toilet is just the normal clashing with the abnormal something I always love about comics particularly Marvel of this vintage there's something patently ridiculous about the frogman well yeah alright there's something completely ridiculous <laughs> about the frogman but it shows what even a vaguely average super suit like this one would be like in the real world mm. real people would be no match for it even in the hands of a clod like Eugene you know he can, he can do all these great things and I like that he's a little bit out of shape. Just a, a little bit. Just a, just a little bit out of shape, yeah. There's some very funny dialogue. DeMatteis does very funny, understated humour in the issue. He never quite goes over into self-parody, does he? No. Which it saves it a great deal and also separates it from a lot of modern humour in comics. Where it's a little bit too nudge-nudge-wink-wink, wink, isn't it? Mm. A little too knowing. Yeah. An awful lot of it. But this, like, some of it, like... Nobody calls Eugene Frogman, they always call him Kermit or Tadpole. Tadpole especially amused me. I don't know why, because he's not even accurate. He's a frog, not a tadpole. That, yeah, that's true. But it's fun, unless it's a reference to him being uh, the son of. Yeah. Although, would these guys even know who Leapfrog was? Because I'm sure he only fought Daredevil once or twice, and then he and they tried to go straight. Right. So I don't know whether they'd even remember who, who Frogman is. Um, reading 80s Spider-Man comics always always casts me back to being, well, younger than you. I was, right. about, I was about 12 when this came out, wasn't I? When did this come out? 1980 what? 1983, so I was 11 when this came out. Well, I may have still been 10, but whatever. Uh, Roger Hotchberg, do you remember Roger? No. He's not quite up there with Mary Jane and Gwen and no, Harry I, and, I didn't, and, and whatever. Usually the Spider-Man shows we cover on. Spider-Man issues cover on the show. It's like, oh yeah, I remember that. I remember him. Mm. I remember that. So, da, 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 but I've never. Well, Roger was one of the the supporting cast in the the eighties that Roger Stern tried to make something of when he was writing it, but he ran into the problems all writers run into right. when they try and create a new supporting cast for for Peter Parker. They are the sixties lot, and mm. nobody uses them after that particular writer is done with them. Yeah. So they just kind of fed into obscurity. Well, they just seemed an awful lot like 
the Lee Ditko Peter Parker. What's wrong with that? Nothing's wrong with it, but he just seemed like too much the same as a younger version of the main character. Oh, right, Roger seemed like a, a younger version of he's Peter. A, he's a shy, timid guy who's looking after his poorly aunt. Yeah, only he's not got the spider powers to be able to go out and do something about the money situation. Yeah, so, so it's yeah. like... Well, that's, that's you know, Peter's... Roger's problem, sorry, hits Peter right in the gut for yeah. that exact reason. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm sure that parallel is intentional. So I, I think it's quite good you picked up on that, given that you didn't know Roger Hodgeberg was. Yeah. So it's, you know, all right. Well, you know, other writers did do stuff with them, to be fair. Uh, his like cre- kill him off as soon as he started. No, no, they, they didn't do that. They furred much better than a lot of you know. Matt Miller would have done that. Yeah. Matt Miller would have killed him off. But um, Hotchberg was in a couple of his Dave Mateus' story. Bill Mantlo used Deb Whitman a lot. Right. Bill Mantlo actually had Deb Whitman think that she was insane when she found out Peter Parker was Spider-Man. Oh was like, yeah. Oh, that can't be true. <laughs> which is Doesn't, which is funny. Isn't there a thing later on in Civil War? That yeah, Deborah now. Whitman writes a tell-all book on Peter Parker and comes back yeah. saying that you, you basically ruined my life by convincing me, by making me insane and then convincing me that you weren't Spider-Man. <laughs> and Peter's like, uh, yeah, but, you know, did he not help you in the long run? It was a good issue, that. Peter never wrote that issue. Mm. So, yeah, they brought uh, Deborah Whitman back. Very few references to what's going on in the main Spider-Man books in this. Yeah. Which is, again, symptomatic of the, uh, the Bronze Age team-up titles. They seem to exist in their own little bubble really referencing what was going on in the other Superman Batman Spider-Man books only Marvel 2-in-1 really impacted on the main Fantastic Four book right. and I wonder if that was easier to do because it, that was kind of like inverted the thing could be the star of Marvel 2-in-1 mm. and then he's just a member of the team in the Fantastic Four right so because the main book he's yeah. gone with a team yeah title. so they could explore him a bit more in 2-in-1 yeah so that was quite an interesting inversion of what the Bronze Age team up books normally are whereas again you know this is more of a Spider-Man story than DC Comics present was a Superman story mm. but it's still not about Spider-Man it's about Roger Hotchberg and Eugene Patillo isn't it yes that's who the story's about and his dad yeah. I would argue it's about his dad as well. The White Rabbit's obsession with books, in particular Alice Through the Looking Glass, would be grafted onto the Mad Hatter. Mm. Almost wholesale yeah. in Batman the Animated Series. Um, did Jeff Loeb and Tim Sale's Mad Hatter story predate Batman the Animated Series? Or was Batman the Animated Series the first one to do that? Because originally the Batman villains that were clearly... I mean, the Mad Hatter obviously has the name, but all that love of Alice in Wonderland was Tweedledee and Tweedledum, wasn't it? Yes. And then it was only the Mad Hatter... The Mad Hatter was obsessed with hats. Yes. Not Alice in Wonderland. So who did that first? The animated series or Jeff Loeb? Okay. I don't for... I can't for the life of me remember. When were those Halloween specials? I don't know, were they not 92? The animated series was 92. Right. And I thought there was something like 95, 96. Right, so... The animated series. Because they were Legends of the Dark Knight spin-offs and Legends of the Dark Knight only started in 1992. Right. Because it was... Oh, no, it didn't. It started in 89, didn't it? Mm. As an adjunct to the new Batman film. So so it could have been 92, 93. So they could have been roughly around... Anyway, it doesn't really matter, does it? We're giving a lot more thought to that than (laughs) we really need to, to be honest with you. Uh, There is a minor continuity snafu in this issue at the end of, of page uh, 13 
Eugene's dad, whose, whose name I've, I've temporarily forgot, so we'll just call him Mr. Patia, <laughs> it seems. Always Mr. Frogman. Mr. Frogman, yes. Well, he was Leapfrog. Yeah. So, Oh, no, he was Frogman, wasn't he? No, yeah, no, you're right, yeah. Yeah, he was Leapfrog. Frog. I'm mixing up with frogs. Which, <laughs> you know, you don't really want to do, do you? That could be confusing. Uh, when he arrives at the White Rabbit's lawyer, he's told to strip off and put on the henchmen uniform. Yet later on, when it is revealed that Mr. Patio is wearing a, a wire, yeah. and he's actually working undercover for the cops, did no one spot that he was wearing a wire, given that the White Rabbit herself is looking directly at Mr. Patio, Mr. Leapfrog, whilst he's getting changed. Maybe he put it on afterwards? How? It's taped to his body. Somebody has to do that. Yeah. I mean, again, it's only a minor continuity <laughs> snafu. I mean, it didn't, you know, it didn't ruin maybe he's, maybe the story. Maybe he's wearing a fake skin-coloured vest. He's not he's wearing a white vest. You quite clearly see it when he strips off. There you go, then he's hiding it under his white vest. All right, well, but on the last page when he lifts his top up, he's not wearing a vest. He's lifting he, it up as well. When he exposes who he is, he's not wearing a vest. He's lifting it up with his... his and that, that's quite elaborately taped to his body. Yeah, you're putting too much thought into it. Right, okay. You're putting too much thought into a story about Leapfrog. <laughs> I'm White Rabbit. Yeah. <laughs> I'm putting too much thought into a story that clearly says he's not for the overly serious. Exactly. I should have heeded the warning <laughs> that, he, that he's You brought on. this onto yourself. I did, yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah. That's, uh, this issue's kind of atypical of Marvel team but most of the time Peter Parker doesn't make an appearance. So focused is the story on the guest style, but DiMatteis does an excellent job of juggling everybody in the story so they've actually got something to do. It's very wordy, like the DC Comics Presents issue, so there's a lot of meat to the story. There's a lot to read in this. He also dovetails the two characters' stories together really well, Eugene and his dad, Roger and his mum, and wraps it all up very convincingly, if a little bit conveniently. Yeah. It's very convenient the White Rabbit should be at the hospital that Roger Hotchberg's mother's in. It's even more of a coincidence that she should go into the exact same room that Roger's mum in, yeah. and then that she should knock him out and get the reward that Eugene's mum, uh, father also gets. Mm. I don't know if that stretched it a bit, but because this is a comedy issue, yeah. I kind of just let it go. Because, you know, it doesn't really matter, does it? It's one of those things that ends with a bad joke, and then they laugh, and then yeah. it freeze frames. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, nevertheless, even with that, this is a very funny and entertaining read. The dialogue is naturalistic and unmelodramatic, and the action's believable and well-depicted by Kerry Gamble. Mm. I liked it a lot. What did What did you think? I quite enjoyed it. I'd, I'd, I'd read more. Leapfrog, manfrog, frog face, <laughs> The Well, he is in an earlier issue of this written by Dimitrius. Which is fun. Yeah. Because that explains his old backstory of how he got I, the costume. I don't think any story with him in it could not be fun. You can't tell a, a gritty Netflix series about <laughs> Leapfrog. Or Frogman. Or Frogman. <laughs> no, no, I don't think we're going to be going the Jessica Jones route with Frogman. But there's another string to Marvel's bow. Right. A comedy series. About them. Yeah. You have Leapfrog being an, ish, an episode of Daredevil. You know that very it's dark like It's just like a five minute. Yeah, he's a five minute. Daredevil just takes him out. He's a joke. Yeah. Matt Murdock learns about his situation with his son and all that, and he convinces him to go straight in exchange for Matt will be his lawyer. 
Matt gets him off with a suspended sentence. Okay. And then the show is about his son trying to use the costume to be a good guy. And it's an out-and-out comedy. It's just a, a comedy, straight up. Okay. Not serious in any way. The complete antithesis of Daredevil. <laughs> there you go. Another string to Marvel's bow. 30-minute Netflix series. Why aren't we pitching this? Why are we not We've pitching? come up with so many good ideas. We have. We have come up with so many great ideas that if only those pesky copyright laws weren't <laughs> in the way of, we could have made a fortune. But we just, we just write analogue stories instead. Yes, yeah, we do. It's just it's a shame, really. Uh, Di Matteis would go on to write the Bwahaha era of the Justice League, uh, a comic series that Shag Matthews is currently devoting a podcast to. Both the book and that podcast are well worth your time. Shag did not pay me to put that little plug into the show, although I think he should do, <laughs> to be honest with you. Marvel 2-in-1 was, as the title suggests, Marvel's other foray into the team-up market. 2-in-1 was a showcase for the thing and separated from the rest of the Fantastic Four, the readers were treated to a different side of old blue-eyed Benjamin Jacob Grimm. 2-in-1 was the more iconoclastic of the team-up titles. It was referenced quite heavily in the main Fantastic Four book, especially after John Byrne took over. And events that happened in 2-in-1 seemed to make a difference in the thing's life. 2-in-1 ran for 100 issues from October 1973 to February 1983 and boasted a number of standout issues. The Project Pegasus arc is often singled out, but issue 50, a team-up between The Thing and The Thing, issue 100, a sequel to issue 50, and issue 60 with The Impossible Man are all good, entertaining comics. There are a number of memorable annuals in 2-in-1's run as well, including annual number 7, which found itself on the list of the 75 best Marvel stories ever, as covered by Blaine Dowler's podcast about those 75 comics. Full coverage of Marvel 2-in-1 continues over on the Fantastic Cast. Marvel 2-in-1's were the thing, not the thing, where the Sandman went straight. Okay. After having a few beers with Ben. That was just the entire issue. Just them in a bar, right. having a beer, and talking. Instead okay. of fighting with each other. It's a great issue. Really good. And then it was all undone when the Sandman went evil again. Because <laughs> the wizard undid his programming or something. Okay. Because, you know, character growth. Here, though, the final book for this show is The Brave and the Bold. This is the oddity of the Bronze Age team-up book in that it predates the Bronze Age by a good 15 years. But it would be strange not to include it. When I was reading Brave and the Bold, it was very definitely lumped in with the other three and was a Batman team-up title. However, it didn't begin that way. As mentioned at the top of the show, the Brave and the Bold launched in June 1955 with three stories featuring the Golden Gladiator, the Viking Prince and Silent Knight. By 1960, the superheroes had taken over with the Justice League of America headline in the boot with issue 28 and Batman making his first appearance as a headliner with issue 59. He returned with issue 64 and by issue 67 he had taken over as the main draw, appearing in every issue from that point forth except issue 72 and 73. For a long while, The Brave and the Bold was the domain of writer Bob Haney, a man for whom continuity was something that happened to other people, but it was the sublime art of Neil Adams that was the main draw. But Brave and the Bold was arguably the best of the team-up books in terms of delivering quality on a regular basis, and ran an impressive 200 issues, finally shutting its doors in April of 1983. Issue 124 was a groundbreaking shattering of the fourth wall that would make Grant Morrison, Glenn Gordon, Karen, Deadpool and William Shakespeare proud. Other team-ups saw the mix move into stranger territory, but undeniably the best issues were written by Alan Brennett. 
One such issue was The Brave and the Bold issue 197, the autobiography of Bruce Wayne. I was certain I had this as a proper issue, but I'll be damned if I can find it. Instead, we read this in the greatest Batman stories ever told from 1988. Still, the best presented greatest Batman stories volume yet to see print. And I can't ask you what you thought of the cover of it, because the only downside to this collection uh, is that it doesn't reproduce the covers of the stories that it reprints. Right. It reproduces some covers. Just not the ones of the stories. Just not the ones of, of the yeah, of the issues that are actually here, which seems a bit odd. But mm. unless it's in the uh, Dick Giordano opening or the Mike Gold opening. No it isn't. No. Okay. Huh. Can't talk about the cover though. If only there was some <laughs> device that we had that would enable us to to look at that cover. That's true. Yeah. So that you could... Should we do that? Okay. Should we have a look at what... All right. Okay. There you go. Yeah. The Scarecrow, Night of Passion, Night of Fear. Scarecrow looms over Batman and Catwoman, whose capes are making a lovely little heart. Yeah. Oh, isn't that sweet? <laughs> that's, that's, that's quite cute, yeah. And snakes and spiders and lions and tigers and... Which other things aren't as cute. Aren't as cute because it's a Scarecrow story. Yeah. Note, the Batman logo is the Golden Age Batman logo. A hint mm. to the story with it. Good cover, though. It's quite a good cover, yeah. Yeah, it's a great cover. Um, the issue itself, as I've mentioned, was written by Brennett with art by Joe Staten and George Freeman. This is a Batman-Catwoman team-up set mostly in 1955, although we quickly established that Bruce Wayne is writing this in his journal from 20 years further down the line, 1975. Batman is called to the Gotham City Police Department by Commissioner Gordon to investigate a present left by Jonathan Crane, a.k.a. the Scarecrow. Batman realises that it causes hallucinations of people's greatest fears, something he succumbs to when the Scarecrow attacks the wedding of Bruce Wayne's ex-girlfriend, Linda Page. Batman's greatest fear is being alone, so when Robin, Batwoman, Alfred and even Clark and Lois seem to disappear, he enlists the aid of Catwoman, still serving a jail sentence, to help. The pursuit of Scarecrow then takes a backseat to exploring the burgeoning relationship between Selina Kyle and Bruce Wayne, a tale that ends tragically, as all these stories do, when Selina dies pointlessly after 20 years of marriage, which was also another episode of The Brave and the Bold. It was. The Brave and the Bold, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, because isn't that where the daughter becomes the Huntress? Yes. We didn't, have we read that for the show? I think, we, yeah, because I think we might have. Did we, read, did we do a Brave and the Bold issue for... Um, well, no, the, the, them two making the Huntress is an actual thing. Yeah, Helena, but I'm sure we've read that issue. I don't know. I'm, I'm, maybe we did it when we did our underrated Batman series. Because wasn't she carried over into Earth 1 after the crisis? Yeah, I think so. Helena Wern. Yeah. I, I can't remember. It all blurs into one after a while, doesn't it? It does. And, and it's not like DC Comics have undergone any number of other crises True. since then, and rebirths and convergences and <laughs> whatever else the hell has happened. So I, I don't know where Helena Wern is now. I don't know what she's up to. She's even still alive. Uh, brilliant splash page. Love Bruce Wayne with his squirt jar and his pipe. Yeah. And Batman firing a gun hmm? with a holster. I love the little subtle changes to Robin's costume as well. Like he's got a yellow trim at the top of his um, short sleeves. Right, okay. I don't know if that's deliberate or a colouring error. error sorry. Well, it's on both of them. So. <clears throat> it is, but it's pretty cool. It looks cool, yeah. yeah. it does. It looks, uh, it looks really good. Uh, Jim Gordon's greatest fear is Batman being shot dead before him. Is it that specifically, or is it just Batman dying? Uh, I suppose so. Yeah, but see, perhaps seeing it, yeah, is, is is part of the deal. Yeah, Linda Page was a nice touch. 
Mm. Linda Purge is a forgotten Bruce Wayne girlfriend. Everyone remembers Julie Madison, yeah, because he was engaged to Julie Madison. But Linda Page is a footnote in Bat history, despite appearing in a number of comics from the forties and fifties, between Batman issue five and issue thirty-two. So she's a good long run for a girlfriend in a Batman comic, especially <laughs> one who doesn't end up dead. That's true. So that's that's quite impressive. Isn't that a bit weird for Bruce to show up at the wedding of his ex-girlfriend, though? Oh well, it's been ten years; they've got over it. That kind of thing. Yeah, <laughs> Fair enough. It's all perfectly accepted. You know, when when they're both on a break. Yeah. I love that he's got that pipe in his mouth everywhere he goes. Mm. That's very 50s. Um, she even appeared in the 1945 Batman serial. Right. I just thought it was a nice touch that he was at the wedding. It emphasises the story's point, doesn't yeah. it? Which is everybody is moving on with their lives. This, this story is pretty much a really heavy-handed way of telling that story. I didn't think it was that heavy-handed. Uh, um, I is. thought it was quite good. For the people he care about to literally disappear right in front of him. Yes, well, it's... it's yeah. It's not... Right, maybe a bit. Well, uh, I'm, not, I, I'm, not, I'm not saying it's, it's bad, but it's very definitely text. Yeah, but consider who the audience for the comics were. Yeah, you know. I mean, I thought that was quite a good metaphor. <laughs> I'll be honest, I feel a bit put out now. <laughs> bit sorry for myself. I didn't think it was every hand. <laughs> anyway, uh, Robin here must be about twenty-two. As Bruce muses that he will soon be graduating college, he's still wearing the pixie boots and short shorts. I thought Robin moved on to the yellow tights green mask ensemble at some point. Oh, yeah, because this is Earth, Earth 2, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Granted, Joe Statton draws him to look much younger than 22. Yeah. But, you know, yeah. Um, Batman inhales the Scarecrow's gas, uh, which, like you said, they disappear, which is a metaphor for Batman losing everyone in his life he's, he's ever cursed. It was about. cool seeing Batwoman. Yeah. Because I've only ever really seen Batwoman in the Morrison stuff. Mm. Yeah, so have you not read that story, The Vengeance Factor, where she gets stabbed to death? I've not. You've not read this Denny O'Neill story? Right, okay. Okay. So it it was quite cool seeing this Batwoman in the actual context. Yeah, of of what she would have been doing as she disappears as well. But what happens to those two after that? Do they not try and pursue the Scarecrow themselves? Because they've not really disappeared. No. Is the point of the story. So, do they not try and communicate with Selina? Because she sees them. Has to see them, yeah. They just disappear, literally. Yeah. I mean, it's a curious plot hole in an otherwise exceptionally written story of love and loss. I mean, later on, Selina asks Batman these questions, but he just ignores them. He just Mm. brushes them off. I would know if they were still here. And, like, well, clearly you don't. Yeah, well, is that not just him being stern? Batman. And stubborn. Batman stern. Batman... Yeah, all right. It's right. like when you're so stern and stubborn and definite, despite being wrong, it's Batman stern. Is, it, is that yeah, a natural... It's an actual thing. Is it? If I, well, can I look that up in Urban Dictionary? No. Yeah. You're not going to put it on Urban Dictionary? I'm, gonna, I'm going to now. All right, okay. Uh, Selina and Bruce are really two of a kind, and Brennett does a good job of exploring the psyche's feelings, drawing parallels between the two of them that emphasise the connection. I liked... I really did like that for this era that the superhero aspect of it just got forgotten. Scarecrow just, he also gets forgotten, doesn't he? Yeah. And this just becomes a love story between mm. two people who have had very hard lives and have found each other at just the right time. Scarecrow's just the means to an end. Yeah, he's just, yeah, he's the MacGuffin to get them both together. Yeah. I thought that was really well done. And in a time before deconstructivism, Brennett has both Batman and Catwoman comment on the comics themselves. Catwoman and Batman both chide the Scarecrow for constantly talking. Mm. That was funny. That was a nice uh, drawing attention to something. And I also think this is the first time any writer alluded to Bruce having scars all over his body. 
after years of being Batman. Right. Which Alex Ross would do Big that famous, painting yeah. of. Yeah. And now everybody runs with. Because mm. it was part of the Dark Knight as well, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, did you think uh, David Goyer knew it came from here, or do you think he just saw that Alex Ross painting? <laughs> I think it's likely so, the Alex Ross pen. Probably. In my opinion. Uh, the story does an excellent job of exploring a Batman who is becoming too obsessed with his mission. Prior to this, the Earth 2 Batman was quite well adjusted, but the Scarecrow's gas, coupled with Batman's natural awareness of his own mortality, which is another key theme in the story, as well as his feelings of loneliness, are driving Batman to be more harder edged than usual which was different for this era mm. so that was a nice touch and the story has some very dark themes it ventures into spousal abuse yeah doesn't it with with Catwoman's story about Selina's story about what her, her husband and he doesn't just slap her he punches her across the face mm. we quite clearly see that that's a full on right hook so that you know that's quite dark yeah for, for this again for this era and she fights back the only way she knows how and she becomes her own person in doing it. Mm. I actually quite I thought that was quite a good motivation for Catwoman. Yeah. Not you know, I'm not a big fan of, of abuse to women. But it was it was a, a, a slightly different motivation than I I don't know if that was part of Earth Two history before this. I don't think I'd read it before I read this issue. Mm. When whenever it came out, eighty five, eighty six. Uh, page twenty two is a stunning end to the issue. Eschewing the standard end to a superhero story like this, yet another Batman versus Scarecrow fight. The Scarecrow is just dropped, wrapped up in a caption box, yeah. of all things. And then Selina realises that only by dropping the masks they both were can they become whole again and start anew. And in superhero comics, this is beautifully illustrated by the actual physical removal of the masks and the cowls. And especially potent with a character like Batman, where fans and pros have debated for years which persona is the real one, hmm. Bruce Wayne or Batman. Oh, it was great. Did you think that was heavy-handed and all? Well, yeah. <laughs> I'm not saying it's bad. <laughs> no, I didn't. It is very definite case of subtext becoming text. Yes. But it doesn't make it bad necessarily. No, I, I, and it fitted the story, It has it? the tone of a last issue of a series. Yeah. You know, like, whatever happened. Well, would this not have been a kind of semi-almost farewell to Earth 2? Because this is very near the crisis. Brave right. and the Bold ends with a team-up between Batman and the Golden Age Batman. Because, mm. again, we've covered that issue. Yeah. And then Batman and the Outsiders starts, and then Crisis on Infinite Earths isn't long after that. I think Batman and, and the Outsiders was 1984, I want to say. 1983, end of 1983, so Crisis was 1985, wasn't it? Yeah. So this could be seen as, as one of the farewells to Earth 2, I suppose. Um, and it does also show the need for secret identities in these things. Yeah. A secret identity is a way to let us, the reader, into the story as well as giving it a wish-fulfillment angle. Without the secret ID, this story just doesn't work. Mm. as it's an exploration of the person beneath the masks we all were in daily life, writ large, because it's a superhero melodrama. But Alan Brennett was really ahead of the curve here. Yeah. Wasn't he? In terms of what he was writing and, and, and how he's put it together in this one really good issue. And I didn't do much of a synopsis for this, but that's largely because the story's not the point. No, is it? It's, it's the characters. Yeah, and it's an exploration of loneliness and loss and love. And Batman is a much more rounded human being here. 
yeah. only becoming the irrational figure of vengeance he's sometimes painted post Miller when he thinks that he's lost everyone and everything that he's ever cared about. Like he's wrapped up in being the character that he forgets who he is. Yeah, because he's as got this Catwoman as Because well. he's got nobody to keep him grounded anymore, and Selina gives him that. But even at the wedding, we don't see Dick Grayson. No. So Unless that's, he's just one of those silhouettes. Yeah, but, you know, I think you should have seen Dick maybe stood in the background as best man or, yeah. or whatever. It just seemed a curious omission to me that you don't see Dick again in the issue. But, you know. I think it's one of the the best things about it is the story about Bruce and Selina, but ultimately that's where it, it doesn't work as well because it ignores everything else. Why? Well, like you just said about it, Batwoman and Robin just completely disappear. Oh, right. Yeah, in so. that it's a bit of a problem with that they do disappear mm. because it gets too wrapped up in the story it's trying to tell I, I didn't mind too much when the story that it was telling was so powerful though yeah I mean it is I, I don't disagree with you that it's the only thing that stuck out at me after reading the issue was well where did Dick go because he doesn't really disappear mm. the point of this is the Scarecrow's Gask have made Batman think they've disappeared but they haven't actually no. So would, did they not carry on their investigations, or why did they not just follow him around and go, I'm here, I'm here, until the gas wore off, or whatever. Yeah. But yeah, the, the curious omission for me is not seeing them at the wedding, because that would just be a, a nicer bow on it. That mm. yeah, he realised it was all a scarecrow thing, and you know everyone was back to normal. But you know, I thought this was a really powerful issue, and it showed what the team at books could do when they really put their mind to it, because mm. I thought it was really good. Did you like it? I did. Good. I'm not saying it was heavy-handed in a bad way. Just no, that's, you know, that's, that's fair enough, I suppose. Good, though. Yeah. Very, very enjoyable. It was a lot stronger than I thought it would be as well. What, the story? Yeah, it's quite a strong, mature story. Yeah. A lot more than... Because the art kind of deceives it a bit. Yeah, the art looks like Earth 2 cartoony, yeah. doesn't it? But there's a lot going on in it. There's a lot of mm. character depth in that story. Brennan wrote like four issues of Batman and I think it's in like three of them are in here. Right. Three of them are in the greatest Batman stories ever told. And which are the other ones? To Kill a Legend, Detective Comics 500, that's another Alan Brennan one. So two stories are in There may be another one in here, I don't know. I'd have to have a look. But, yeah. There have been a few attempts to revive the team-up titles with both the Brave and the Bold and Marvel team-up having numerous revivals over the years. None of them have stuck. Today's shrunken marketplace has no place for good, solid, dunny-one tales with no real links to what has gone before or what will come later. Today, every story has to matter in the overall scheme of things, leaving very few avenues left for stories such as these, if there was even an audience for them, which I doubt. Comics aren't cheap impulse buys anymore, and therefore this kind of comic is no longer in favour. Which is true, isn't it? Even yeah. when they brought Brave and the Bold back, it was six-issue story arcs. Even yeah. though Mark Wade structured it in such a way that it was a different team up every issue, it was, still... it was part of an overall overarching story. Yeah. And it's, you know, you, you, you just don't get stories like these three anymore. Which I think's a shame. Uh, we very much hope you enjoyed this look at the Bronze Age team-up books of yesteryear. To hear coverage of Marvel 2-in-1 on a regular basis, I urge you to check out the fantastic cast, which I do with Stephen Lesser, shameless plug. <laughs> it's felt like doing a shameless plug. Uh, that was good, that. That was, that was a bit different from what we've been doing of late. It was. Doing two, three single issues. Next time on an all-new episode of Hey Kids Comics, we are going to look at the Earth 1, Volume 1 books for Superman, Batman and Wonder Woman. The Earth 1 trilogy. The Earth 1, well... 
you know, there's three Supermans now and two Batmans well, and one Wonder Woman and the D the and there's DC Teen Titans? Trilogy. The DC there's a, there's the, the yeah, DC Trinity. Yeah, Trinity. Yeah, uh, yeah, there's a, a Legion and a Teen Titans. Is there a Legion? Mm. Yeah, Both of which are written by Jeff Lemire, I believe. Alright. Okay, okay. So we hope you'll enjoy enjoy us. I always get that wrong, don't I? And we hope you and <laughs> we'll hope you join us and that you enjoyed this one. And we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye bye. A Kids Comics is a The Devil Will Find work for idle hands to do production and a Two True Freaks presentation. If you wish to buy stuff from Amazon, why not do it through the twotruefreaks.com link, which leaves a couple of pennies in our tip jar. The music used in Hey Kids Comics is used to underscore the synopsises so they're not quite as boring as you just listening to me talk. Michael and Andrew can be reached through Facebook, Twitter, whatever. Why not join us so we can talk about funny books together? Correspondence to the show generally can be sent to heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. Thank <laughs> you.